3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8 30 am Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Monday Breakfast. Yeah. How are you, Alice? I'm good. How are you, Dean? Oh, very well, thank you. And this uh, July the 15th, just quickly, mm-hmm. uh, Melbourne weather for today, 80% chance of showers this morning, decreasing to a medium 50%. So take your umbrella uh, during the afternoon um, at the top of 13 today, and tomorrow 60% chance of showers, most likely in the morning. But I think the rain continues pretty much all week, uh, and tomorrow the top of 15. Mm. Yeah, so uh, welcome to Mondays. Mondays are always very, very exciting. Uh, <laughs> and we've got one, there's one less of us today. Yes, Judith is away, um, but she's here in spirit. Yeah, yeah, she sure is. She's taking, I think, a well-rested and well-earned couple of weeks and, and she's going to do some Tai Chi. Uh, yes, that's right. Exactly <laughs> Nearly forgot about do. that. Um, <laughs> so today on the show we've got um, Sanjita at 7.30. Sanjita yeah. Yeah. At 7.30 and we're going to be talking about the new bill that's been proposed um, to Parliament. It was proposed on the 4th of July and it was proposed by Peter Dutton and um, basically, if it is approved, it could exclude citizens from returning to Australia. So we'll talk more about that at 7.30, but that's the, yeah, the crux of it. Oh, um, I've done Wednesday breakfast a few times with um, uh, the, the other crew, and I know there's a, a website that you can go to and have a look at some of the bills that are currently in Parliament and waiting to be passed. So this temporary exclusion orders bill 2019 is number, there's no number, but <laughs> it says a bill for an act to protect the community from terrorism by providing for temporary exclusion orders and for related purposes. And I think we were talking before we came on, I mm-hmm. thought there was millions of bills like yeah. this, but it would be great to hear from Sanjita. Yeah. Um, and in the background of what happened in on the Gold Coast recently, um, and what I mean by that is over the, the weekend, there were dozens of residents of a Gold Coast aged care home who could be left homeless after their facility shut down suddenly on Friday. Um, we've got at 7.45 the CEO of SANE Australia, um, Dr Michelle Blanchard, is taking, um, or has been, a witness actually into the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system, which must focus on, um, I guess, access mm. is what SANE are calling for. So she'll be talking to us about that. I know um, they're not related, but, you know, um, when How you find yourself 18... home on the Gold Coast? Uh, yeah. Just... Well, the story goes that... Um, there was a, a dispute between the home's aged care provider and its management company. 
and now it's left well i mean yeah if you're in homeless. your 80s or mm. you're in a home it's going to have some really really um you know big effects on your mental health let alone the, your children and physical health if you're mm. 80 that sort of stress and that impact that can that can be detrimental to all sorts of health well some some of the kids were being interviewed who you know got a phone call at 4 p.m. in the afternoon saying hey there's nowhere for your mum or your father to go, and now they have to go and live with them, which, you know, changes mm. everything, um, which is, yeah, really scary. And then at 8 o'clock we'll be talking to... Megan Lee at 8 o'clock. And um, she's going to be speaking to us a bit about our cravings in winter. So we're going to be chatting <laughs> all about comfort food, why, mm. we, why we crave it, the link between our brains and our guts and um, where these potentially where these cravings come from all those carbs yeah all those carbs and cheese and big bowls of stews with dumplings so we're going to find out a little bit more about that uh, and let's go to a few community announcements and we'll be back in just a moment Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Don't panic. There is a Planet B. Come along to a sparkling night of progressive comedy at Greenleft Weekly's annual comedy debate. Join Masters of Ceremonies, Rod Quantock with Sean Bedlam, Duff, Fiona Scott-Norman, Hellchild, Kirsty Mack and Tom Tanuki. Tickets are $50 Solidarity, $30 Regular, $22 Low Waged and $12 Concession. There'll be a bar and the opportunity to buy a delicious dinner. Friday the 26th of July, 6.30pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Don't panic, there is a Planet B, a fundraiser for the radical newspaper Green Left Weekly. Bookings are essential, phone 9639 8622 or go to trybooking.com/bdhtx. Green Left Weekly is a 3CR supporter.
And that was Whiskey and Tears, Chelsea Drugstore. Dirty Dirty Cage. Cage. (laughs) I like that one. It's a great song. That was a really good one. An urgent call out to our listeners and supporters. Drew and Steve from the CFMEU Victaz have been personally fined by the ABCC a total of almost $20,000 for going onto a site to check up on safety standards. The ABCC has also ruled that the CFMEU can't pay the fine for them. If Drew and Steve can't pay by July the 19th, they'll be in contempt of court and will face jail time. To donate, go to unfairfines.raiselly.com. That's unfairfines.raiselly.com. 3CR is proudly Union Radio. So before we get into our interview, um, I just want to spend a couple of minutes chatting about the US soccer and the World Cup that we've just seen and witnessed. And I'm not, um, I'm not a huge follower of sport. I can't say I know much about it, although I do know that England won the World Cup in cricket last night. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just dropping that in. Um, but the, yeah, and the New York Times, this caught my eye because I just really loved the title of this piece by Lindsay Krauss. And it's American soccer, where men are men and women are repeat world champions. They are unequaled in play and unequal in pay. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just, I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about the fight in soccer that is happening right now. And the U.S. team are really leading that with um, equal pay. And the fight does continue. And their captain, Megan Rapinoe, has been militant and absolutely incredible in the fight so far she's taken every opportunity to talk about it and to go against what's happening in the white house and as much as possible um but another player that we shouldn't forget about either is ida huggerberg and she's actually been known as the best women's player in soccer in the world and she skipped this world cup in protest um for equal pay and that was a huge loss, obviously, to the Norwegian team. But it's the stand that she has taken has also um, really captured the attention of a lot of uh, a lot of fans and a lot of people in power that should be really taking notice of what's happening in women's soccer at the moment and in sport throughout the whole world with unequal pay against women and men. And, um, yeah, it's quite interesting because the, the, the American women's team came under a lot of fire the way that they behaved at the World Cup, but that's neither here nor there. But Rapino has been um, instrumental, and she's voiced her, her I guess, her uh, anti-Trump message as well because, you know, she always talks about how Trump excludes a lot of people that look like her and a lot of people in her base. So she did say at one point that she was not going to go to the White House because they've all been invited there. So she's, um, you know, these women, I guess, have given um, glory to women's sport and they'll keep pushing the message that equality is important and and I guess your gender shouldn't really matter as well, especially with a captain that stands up for what she believes Mm. in. And and the Norwegian soccer player, yes, making that stand in, in Europe... You know, a lot of people would mm. say, oh, you cost us that, but she stood up for what she believes in. But, yeah, ultimately there has to, I think, 
if we've learned anything from campaigns before, like if you want great change, sometimes sacrifice has to be made. And mm. that was the point when um, Ida Heigerberg decided to skip the World Cup because she wanted to make that that initial um, stand and statement. Yeah, I mean, and I think we, when we spoke before, you mentioned that tennis has come a long way mm-hmm. in making sure that um, men and, you know, close the gender pay gap. You know, yeah. I think the Australian Open is one where both men and women get the same prize money. Mm. Not sure if mm. Wimbledon's the same, but most of them are heading that way. Yeah, but and you, I think... Yeah. Um, I think the reason why it stands out so much with the US soccer team and in football um, is because in the US, the soccer team is just more successful in every single championship they go on. Yeah. I mean, they are just more yeah. successful. Well, they've been um, world number one for a long, long time. They've been world number one, and they are—they are big. They get—they re—they repin more with sponsorship than yeah. the men's team mm. do in soccer. And the men's—the men in the US are still getting paid more than the women. Yeah. So it's—it's it's when that is happening that you—that you do have to just take a look and think. You can't pull out those same old excuses now, as the men are just doing better. The men are winning the championships. The men are. The men get more views because that's not the case. Yeah, people no, are people watching the US and American off women. The men's exactly. soccer team, but they're watching the women's. Yeah. So, team. so when are we going to just be honest about it and say what it is? Yeah. Call a spade a spade. <laughs> it's going to take a while. You've got to get rid of one guy with a massive quiff before yeah. that can happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll try and uh, get. Sanjita mm-hmm. on. Yeah, should we play some music in the meantime? Oh, yeah. We've got Teresa Duffy Richards. Teresa Duffy Richards, yeah, that will be a nice song. A nice little addition. CD to uh, take us to our, our first interview of the show. Isn't that always the way? Yes. When you try and uh, get this cool Aussie music on, you get uh, stuck. <laughs> stuck at the first hurdle. Well, you know, her song, I'll go. What are we going to go for? I might go for Mama's song. And this is Teresa Duffy Richards. Duffy Richards there with Mama Song. And now we've got our first guest on the show, Sanjita Pillay, um, a senior research associate at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales Law School. Um, so we're going to be chatting today about Peter Dutton's proposed bill on the 4th of July, which, if passed, could actually exclude citizens from returning to Australia. So the bill was introduced to Parliament, and um, yeah, we're now going to speak to Sanjita Pillay a little bit more about that. Sanjita, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. Um, can you just tell us a bit more about the bill that was proposed? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a piece of legislation that's currently before Parliament. It hasn't been it hasn't been passed yet, so Parliament has to has to vote on it, um, and it's. A bill that, if it's passed, it would allow the Minister for Home Affairs to make temporary exclusion order against um, citizens that are outside Australia and 
in particular circumstances. And um, what that what that is, a temporary exclusion order, is an order that bans a person from returning to Australia while it's in force. Mm. So when a person has a, a temporary exclusion order, or a TEO, you, you see it as abbreviated as sometimes, in force against them, it's an offence for them to come back to Australia and um, they might even be required to surrender their passport, effectively making it impossible for them for them to come back. Right. And what does a person have to have done to receive a TEO? So what's, what's the criteria, basically? Sure. So... Um, the, the context for introducing the bill is like it's designed to, to mitigate the threat posed by um, foreign fighters that are um, kind of anticipated to to be re- like wanting to return to Australia, like following the, the kind of like dying down of, of conflict in in Syria and Iraq. So that's kind of what it's aimed at. Mm. Um, aimed at kind of making it like you know managing the return. It's, they're not designed to exclude people from coming back forever. They're designed to like to, to manage. The return of foreign fighters to Australia, um, so they're, they're kind of designed to mitigate threats posed by people returning that are seen to be dangerous. But actually, like the criteria for issuing a TEO doesn't require any wrongdoing on the part of the the, the person before um, an order can be issued against them. So um, the, there's two circumstances in in which a, a temporary exclusion order can be issued against the person. The first is um, if the Minister for Home Affairs reasonably suspects that issuing the order would substantially help prevent terrorism-related acts. And the second is um, where ACO has assessed the person to be a, a direct or an indirect threat to, to security. Um, but there's no standard of proof that ASIO needs to be satisfied of when they're, they're making that assessment. And it's also just reasonable suspicion on the minister's part. And it can be quite indirect. Mm. So the person doesn't have to have been involved in, in a terrorist act themselves. Um, they can just be seen to be dangerous effectively and, and have this like exclusion order imposed, imposed against them. And Sanjita, do we, it's Dean here, do we not already have an extensive national security program that could, um, I guess, you know, have uh, pro- ways to prosecute returning foreign fighters already? Yeah, we, absolutely we do. So Australia's got, like, one of the most if, the most extensive fleets of national security laws in the world. We've got, now at this point, we've got 75 pieces of, of anti-terror legislation, all of which has been issued, like, post-2001 when the September 11 terrorist attacks happened, and a lot of which has been issued post-2014 like mm. when the, the foreign fighters um, through, like issue first came on the radar. And that legislation, it does a lot of things. So um, in certain... like it, it allows for the prosecution of people where they have been involved in terrorist acts, either in Australia or overseas. It allows for people to be prosecuted even travelling to certain areas in Syria and Iraq where um, where fighting takes place. So you don't have to have like you don't, you don't have to have been involved in, in conflict at all. Even going to an area mm. where there's a lot of conflict taking place can leave a person liable to prosecution as can like any involvement in actual foreign fighting or or, um, or terrorist defences. So there's a, a like substantial criminal law regime. Sometimes what is said is that it's difficult to meet the threshold of proof, but mm. we've got a control order regime in place mm. for that, so where you can't make out a prosecution against the person, but nonetheless um, 
there's a reasonable belief that they would pose a risk to the community in Australia, there can be a control order imposed which essentially like monitors the person requires to report or not use a mobile phone or not engage with certain people and, and things like that. So effectively like manages any risk that they pose. For people overseas and within Australia, they can sometimes have their citizenship revoked. Um, so that in the case of a person outside Australia would prevent them returning at all. Or And there's also passport control legislation that, that can make it um, impossible for a person to, to travel again, including to Australia, where that would pose a risk. There's a, yeah. You're absolutely right. There's a lot that's already in place. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to see what this would add. Yeah. And just on the topic of the revoke the revoking of a citizenship so i know um in your article that you've written also it's on the conversation that we'll link to this um in, on the monday breakfast podcast mm-hmm. earlier in the uh, this year in the uk the government actually revoked somebody's um citizenship so shamima bagam and yeah, you would obviously know this, but obviously they were relying on her Bangladeshi heritage and that she had dual he- citizenship, but mm-hmm. she doesn't have dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. And the the UK have revoked her um, citizenship and she's ultimately been left stateless, but she is repealing that. But what happens when people um, like Shamima have their citizenship revoked or are given TEOs and they're actually left there? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and we've had the same, like, the, an analogous case to the Shamima Begum case in Australia is the Neil Prakash case. So the Minister for Home Affairs has revoked Neil Prakash's citizenship on the basis that, so Neil Prakash, for anyone that doesn't know, is a, um, a person who was a, a member of, of ISIS mm-hmm. over, overseas, uh, like, he's outside of Australia, and um, his citizenship was revoked on the basis that he is um, a citizen of Fiji, which Fiji says he's not. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, everything objective suggests that he's he's not a citizen of, of Fiji, but nonetheless, um, as it stands now, the, the department, has, the minister here has said that his Australian citizenship has been revoked. He's got the option of challenging that through the courts, but because he's overseas at the moment and, and kind of stuck there mm. with no feasible way to come back to Australia, actually availing of that right to, to review the decision is not practicable for him. So yeah. he's kind of sitting in a Turkish jail at the moment and he's got this, like, he's probably not entitled to, like, he probably shouldn't have had his citizenship revoked. He's probably not a citizen of Fiji, but there's not much in practice that he can he can do about it and um, it's it's similar with the TEO legislation. Mm. I guess a person might be left in the situation where their travel options are like it, theoretically there are judicial review rights, um, but um, a person might be left in a country where they don't even have a right to be there, so they end up in detention, or where they can't like they're, they're blocked from coming back here to avail of those review rights. Mm. Even where that doesn't happen, a person might be left in in a country where like they are stuck in a terrorist cell, which, like, incre- increases threats to global security versus, like, if you're thinking of the two options, one is they come back to Australia and they're prosecuted, and the second is they, they're stuck in a terrorist cell where their only connections are, are with um, a, a dangerous group, then, like, it's kind of a great...
greater threat to global security to exclude them from Australia. Exactly. And um, are there any are there any plans with along with the TEO? So the government are going to be able to say exactly when they're going to come back. I believe is that in a two-year basis. It's um, so each TEO can be issued for up to two years, but they can be stacked. Mm. So in practice, like you could have them indefinitely. Like you, you could have like you could have a person excluded for ten years or, or even more um, if if they're stacked. A person can um, kind of basically request. To like request an entry permit at any point, and at that point they will be um, will be given one. So it's a bit weird. It's like you're excluded, but if you say you want to return, then they have to give you an entry permit. But that entry permit doesn't it doesn't give you an immediate right to enter Australia. It can it can itself have a one year exclusion um, period in it. And the, the real risk is that people won't like yeah. you know they won't won't know or they won't like be in contact to in a position to request that so they'll just kind of have this exclusion order in effect against them that they'll have to deal with if it ever falls on their radar Mm -hmm. and i know in the uk there is a there is um part of the program to bring them back i say program that's probably not the right term but um there is like a rehabilitation and almost like an uneducating of that person plan to go ahead Yes. Is that the same in, in Australia with this TEO? No, it's not. And it's one of the reasons why it's really unclear what this adds to the existing like suite of legislation in Australia because um, like all the all the TEO, the proposed TEO legislation would do here is exclude someone returning from a period of time and then if they have a return permit issued because they, they ask for one, then um, it allows them to come back after a further 12 months and be subjected to controls. Mm. But subjection to controls, like we already have that under the control orders scheme. What the UK TEO legislation does is it allows, um, it, it's the same, it's designed to kind of manage the return of um, people who are thought to be dangerous to, to the UK, but at the point that they come in, the assessment is made and, and that leads to either prosecution or control or um, kind of an assessment that the person like doesn't, that those measures aren't appropriate, but rehabilitation is. Mm. And so it's designed to exclude where necessary, but then reintegrate otherwise. And the reintegration part of that is, is missing from the Australian legislation. It's just a scheme for exclusion and then control, both of which there's other mechanisms that already exist in our law, so it's not really clear why we need this. Yeah. And um, annoyingly, we're going to have to... I've only got time for one more question, but I've got so many here. Um, Just lastly, I guess, is there any public information that can tell us how many Australians this might affect or or how many Australians have left for Iraq or Syria? Um, there's, There's not... Like great information, like uh, there's some information available on um, the the department, like you know, on the department website. But how, like the, the full extent of how many people it might affect is is not not clear. Like mm-hmm. the security agencies have said that they expect for a lot of um, of um, foreign fighters to like be returning to to Australia in the near future, and so. Um, I expect that's that's good information, and um, and that it's appropriate that like we think about what we need in mm-hmm. place to deal with that situation. But there's there's not much that this P 
piece of legislation would would add to what we've already got as far as I can see. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today um, and talking about this really important issue and talking us through it a little bit more so we can really have an understanding of what this bill means and, and the context around it. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Sanjita, for joining us. And I will have your um, the link to Sanjita's article on our Monday Breakfast page so that you'll all be able to read that yourself and also the bill so you can read that bill yourself as well. So thank you, Sanjita. Have a great day. Thank you so much, you too. No worries, bye. And that was Sanjita Pillay. We'll be back with our next guest in just a moment. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittlesecc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. AM 3CR, it's just gone 7.45. It's time now to um, yeah, get to our next guest, the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system has begun and it's, it's the first of its kind and I guess it's a once in a generation opportunity to um, accelerate improvements in access to mental health services, service navigation and models of care. Um, last week, SANE, however, um, called on the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system to focus on access. Uh, the mental health um, charity says that many Victorians are affected by complex mental health issues, including schizophrenia, bipolar, personality disorders, eating disorders and severe and enduring mood disorders have difficulty accessing the support they need. To find out a little bit more about exactly what is happening and what SANE is calling for. We are called, we are joined by SANE Deputy CEO, Dr. Michelle Blanchard. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on uh, 3CR. No problem at all. Um, we've had the, the pleasure of speaking to SANE a few times and I guess as a, um, as a national mental health charity working to support 4 million Australians affected by complex mental health. We know that most people are aware of the mental health crisis we have at the moment. Can you give us an idea of how large Victoria's mental health problem is at the moment? Yeah, so there's about 800,000 Australians who live with complex mental health challenges 
Um, and then we estimate that for every one of those individuals, there's another four or five people who are directly affected as, as family, friends and loved ones of, of that individual. Um, if we think about Victoria as a state, there's probably about 200,000 Victorians who live with complex mental health issues like schizophrenia, personality disorder, um, bipolar disorder and, and others. Um, and what we've seen over the last couple of years is that the threshold to be able to access specialist mental health services in Victoria has really increased because the amount of resourcing that we have available to support people has remained finite. Um, so expenditure on mental health services in Victoria really hasn't kept up with demand um, and spending currently sits at about 202 dollars per person um, and that's actually the lowest rate right around the country wow um and and, and i think I, I mentioned that the you know this royal commission is all about providing opportunity um for uh, the conversation around mental health and do you feel uh, that you know that access is necessary in redesigning the architecture uh, of the mental health system because of, you know, what it is costing at the moment or is it because there's, a, I don't know, a stigma attached to some of these mental health issues or, or a bigger picture? I think there's a couple of different issues there. I think certainly stigma and discrimination continue to play a role for people with complex mental health needs. Um, we've done fantastic things to destigmatise illnesses like depression and anxiety, um, but we haven't really seen the benefits of that destigmatisation effort for other mental health conditions. Um, but in terms of access, what we see for people with complex mental health issues is that they often um, need to become acutely unwell um, before they're able to receive adequate care and support. Um, so that sometimes means that people are coming to receive care and support um, via ambulance or, or emergency services um, where it could have been um, much more helpful for them to get help sooner and in the community. Um, so it's really important that those access issues are addressed um, so that resources can be directed to the places in the system that we really need them the most. And, and I think the other thing I read was that, you know, the Royal Commission is um, planning to deliver an interim report by November 2019 and they've committed mm. to implementing every recommendation from the Royal Commission. I know that um, you can actually read your statement online as well mm -hmm. um, in regards. So, you know, what what's being left out that you feel that, you know, you have to ask for them to look at access as an issue and, and do you, I guess, do you have a framework seeking to improve access outcomes for Victorians as well? So I think the terms of reference for the Royal Commission are quite broad um, and that's a really good thing in that it gives the Royal Commission the opportunity to look at the system as a whole and, and look at all of the different challenges that might be impacting the mental health and wellbeing of Victorians. Um, I think from our perspective, what's really important is that um, the Royal Commission focuses on understanding uh, what's needed to support those Victorians with complex mental health issues um, who really need a model of care that responds better to the severity of the experiences that they might be having, um, provides them with access to better continuity of care. People often talk to us about their care being quite fragmented, mm. so 
they sort of have to access things in, in little packages yeah. um, rather than in a really holistic way. Um, and the other issue that's really important and needs to form part of any model going forward is services that are integrated to meet the needs of the whole person. So, um, you know, we often think of mental health services just in terms of medical or clinical care, um, but it's also really important that we think about issues like employment, housing, physical health, people's personal and social relationships, because all of those things are absolutely critical to someone's recovery. And, and even, um, you know, uh, uh, work, significant work in educating the general public about how to best support their family, friends, and, and, more, and I guess work colleagues as well living with complex mental health issues. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, we have lots of conversations now about how we support friends, family or colleagues who might be experiencing depression and anxiety, but, you know, that conversation hasn't necessarily opened up for some of these more complex challenges. So we'd really welcome, you know, more community conversations about how that can be done. And I know um, you've got a, a new initiative at the uh, Anne Diverson Research Centre, which opened mm-hmm. late last year, and you, the aim of that, that centre is to drive policy changes regarding the complex mental health issues of people. Am I correct? It is, yeah. So Anne was a journalist and broadcaster, and um, about 35 years ago she was one of the first, I think, high-profile Australians to talk about her family's experience um, of supporting uh, their son, Jonathan, who lived with a complex mental health issue. Um, and so our centre is really being established to try and drive um, social change. We know there's a lot of really good research being done on clinical models of care or on understanding what might be going on in the brain. We're really focused on how we can best support the individual in the community, reduce stigma and discrimination and ensure that everyone has the best possible chance of recovery. And out of those, um, I know we've just sort of had uh, NADOC week and, you know, Indigenous um, mental health is also something that could be, is part of the Royal Commission. Mm. Um, and we were talking about, you know, the, I guess the community that some Indigenous people feel like um, it, it, it's not um, relative to what they're used to, you know, in terms of coming together and setting up um, urban uh, community services which focus mm. specifically on Indigenous. Is there something that's been done in regards to, you know, the Indigenous mental health aspect through the Royal Commission or even through the Anne Davison Centre itself? So my understanding is that the Royal Commission is spending some time considering um, the needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities mm. and I, I understand that that's the focus for the Royal Commission this week. Um, Certainly, from the perspective of the Anne Deverson Research Centre, we know that people's um, experiences, their backgrounds, their culture are incredibly important to their experience of mental health and wellbeing. Um, And as our projects roll out, in particular, some research we're doing on understanding how stigma and discrimination affect people's lives, um, we're hoping to also look at the other areas of people's identity um, where they might experience forms of marginalisation or exclusion um, to really understand how that impacts someone's health and wellbeing and how we can, can shift that so that it makes a more positive difference. And, and I think um, you mentioned earlier that it's that whole driving of social change. Uh, I was quite surprised, um, I'll try not to hold you for too long, but I was quite surprised that, you know, um, people over the age of 18, once they get to 26, 
there's a need for them to rely on a public mental health system. And if they do have complex mental health issues, you know, yeah, as you said, it's on a sort of a, a, it's fragmented, isn't it? You go there to get help for this, you go here to get help for that. But if it's a holistic approach, there is that opportunity that when someone turns 26, they already have the, I guess, the underlying platform and a base that's been set to continue moving forward. Absolutely. And, you know, we know there's been so much good work done in the area of youth mental health Mm. to really provide young people with access to more holistic care. We know that the earlier you intervene, the better the outcomes are in the long run. Um, But there is also a significant number of Victorians who are affected by complex mental health difficulties right throughout their lifetime. And it's really important that those individuals have access to um, the same types of holistic care and support, um, not just in the medical system, but in the community in terms of housing, employment, education uh, and other forms of support um, so that they do have the opportunity for really good outcomes as well. And, um, you know, this is probably a a bit of a sidetrack, but I know on Friday, which you know, could be linked to, to what is happening. There was a, the Earl Haven Retirement Village at Narang in Gold Coast, which uh, the aged care facility, which shut down essentially, leaving, you know, hundreds of uh, elderly patients without a home. And there's going to be obviously some flow-on effect to their family members as well, having to look after these people who now don't have any accommodation. So mental health is not only obviously a Victoria-wide thing, and it's not only for young people, but mm. it um, it encompasses everybody, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. So mental health and wellbeing is such an important aspect of all of our lives. And, you know, we know that probably half of us will experience some sort of mental health problem at some point in our lifetime. So ensuring that that the right care and support is available is absolutely critical. Um, And to, to, I guess, to assist with some of the work that still needs to be done to address the structural discrimination and stigma of people living with complex mental health issues. How, how can our listeners support SANE to continue, and the end Division Research Centre, to continue the work that you're doing as well? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways. So later in the year, we're going to be calling for participation in a survey to examine the impact of stigma and discrimination on people's lives. Um, And at that point, we'll really be calling on on everyone to support us to get the word out there about that project. Um, But probably another um, really great way people can support us is to head to our website, sane.org, S-A-N-E.org, um, and read a little bit more about mm. complex mental health issues. I think education is a really, really powerful antidote against stigma and discrimination. Um, and so the more that people um, learn from the experiences of those who um, have experienced complex mental health issues, um, the more inclusive and, and supportive community we can create. And, and, and the word there that I think even in my intro, all I talked about was mental health issues. The word that's really important there is that complex. I think mm. even having an understanding of what the differences are and knowing that you know things like bipolar and, and eating disorders do fall into complex mental health issues is quite important. Absolutely. I think there are a range of, of mental health issues that affect people in the community um, and it's really important that we create some more visibility of those challenges that perhaps are, are a little bit less well understood. 
Well, um, thank you, Michelle. We really appreciate you joining us on 3CR. And uh, we'll um, put the, uh, I think it's a website, www.sane, which is sane.org. Um, and you can do forward slash royal commission. But you can also, you know, um, yeah, call the SANE Help Centre if you have, um, you know, mental health issues or anyone in crisis who is looking to, I guess, contact somebody, they can call Lifeline on 131114 and Men's Helpline, Kids Helpline and Suicide Callback Line as well. We really appreciate you joining us on, on 3CR. Thank you. And that was uh, Dr Michelle Blanchard, who is the Deputy CEO of SANE, talking to us about a really, really... Um, you know, big issue in our community. I think it's only going to, as we become more, um, I guess, as we move forward in technology and everything Mm. and people Mm. sort of communities not really sticking together because everyone lives in their own Instagram bubble, you know, (laughs) mental health is going to be a pretty big um, issue going forward. Um, We'll be back and have our next guest on the line. It's not too late to donate It's not too late to donate It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 Or check our website 3cr.org.au You're on 855 AM. And we're now going to be speaking to Megan Lee, PhD candidate and academic tutor at Southern Cross University. So we're in the middle of winter now in Melbourne, and it's safe to say we're all probably craving some big bowls of pasta, and our cravings have gone up the air. Yeah, absolutely everything. Um, But the questions that we're going to ask today really are, why do we have these cravings, especially in winter? Um, What is the link between the brain and the gut? And where do these cravings come from? So right now we're going to speak to Megan. And Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No worries. Um, Can you just, first of all, just tell us a little bit about what happens to our gut and our brain when we eat food? So there's newly emerging research that we're doing at Southern Cross University on how the gut affects the brain and that the gut is now actually being called our second brain because all those happiness chemicals that we have like dopamine and serotonin actually produced in our gut. So 90% of them are produced in our gut. Wow. And and do different foods trigger different sort of happiness chemicals? Like, so for example, if I were to eat a beef burger, would have that would that have the same impression on the brain if I had a banana or something like that? So it's really interesting how the difference between like complex carbohydrates, like in whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, work on our brain compared to that of uh, refined carbohydrates that we find in like burger buns, pastries, biscuits things like that. So in those refined carbohydrates, the sugar um, or the glucose gets sent directly up to our brain. We get a really big energy boost, but then we have this crash. Excuse me, sorry, we have this crash. (laughs) With complex carbohydrates, they give us an even amount of energy throughout the day so that we're not going on these sugar highs and lows throughout the day. Right. So is our gut having a harder time processing those complex carbs? Is that what you're saying? 
Or is it the other way around? carbs are really, really good for our gut okay. and, our, and the good and bad bacteria in our gut because they feed off those complex carbohydrates. And then they produce this um, nice balance within our gut. With refined carbohydrates, there's new research coming out now that says that these types of carbohydrates actually damage that lining of our gut. They damage that good and bad bacteria and the balance between those. And that balance is so important not only for all of our physical health, but also our mental health as well. Yeah, because yeah, if, if your gut can and your brain can produce these feelings, um, these sort of trigger trigger happy feelings, then it will have an effect on a mental health, won't it? That's exactly right. We're just discovering now, only over the last decade, um, in the field of nutritional psychology and nutritional psychiatry, that there is this this interconnectedness between the mind and the and the body and especially within the gut and there's so much more that we are finding out about how the gut and the brain influence each other Mm. and so why do we crave these um maybe these happy chemicals in winter so there's a couple of different reasons the first reason um links back to social learning theory which states that we model from um, people in our lives that we love like our role models so our parents so back when we were children, our parents would have given us certain types of foods like hot chocolates and mm-hmm. puddings and macaroni and cheese in the winter time, and to comfort ourselves when we're cold and and it's a little bit sad and low moody in winter. To comfort ourselves, we go back to those foods that our parents used to offer us as mm. like consolation and comfort. Mm. Because in the summer as well, I guess you you have the sun which which everybody's out in, everybody's happy in the sun, you might be moving a little bit more. So you you might feel healthier anyway in the summer and those happy chemicals are just bouncing around. But in the winter, because yeah. like you say, it's dark, it's it's gloomy, it's cold, we look for those yeah. chemicals or that those feelings just in what we're eating. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we get dopamine and serotonin in a, in a few different ways. One is through diet. The other is from sun exposure, sunlight exposure, uh, physical activity, and also social interaction. And all those are lower in the winter as we stay inside to keep away from that cold. Mm. And um, back to the social learning theory, because that's really interesting. So I guess, like you said, it can create, it can, it can sort of trigger those happy memories of the, that hot chocolate and those puddings or um, a big bowl of pasta in my in my case. Um, but is, could that be quite harmful as well? If we were, say, if you grew up and you didn't have, um, you didn't have a healthy influence, perhaps it's much harder to to try and make good decisions if you're if when you're growing up and those foods that are triggering triggering those happy emotions are really unhealthy. And we have to be really um, gentle on ourselves and also on our parents that that were making those decisions because we all try to make healthy decisions for our children but the problem is is that massive food industry out there that's telling us all these things that are healthy that might actually not be Mm, mm. so and and it goes my mum was really 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 healthy she would always give us the healthiest foods that she could but even back then she thought that muesli bars in our lunchbox and juice poppers and things like that were a healthy alternative 
And yeah. we're now finding out that a muesli bar has as much sugar in it as the Mars bar does. Mm. But our parents always were trying to do the best for us. So Yeah, yeah. that's true. And I I have the same. Like my mum would and my dad would always try and make the best decisions that they could for us. But information changes all the time. So so what what in the 90s my parents thought were really healthy now we have more information to to say otherwise yeah um and, and I thought, sorry go on i thought nutrigrain was really healthy when i was a kid i was like <laughs> yeah i want to be an iron man and um watch the the ads of the iron men in the ocean eating their nutrigrain getting <laughs> strong and now we know that nutrigrain is actually one of the highest cereals for sugar content and it's not actually healthy and I'm like ah you know what I mean (laughs) damn yeah I know exactly what you mean um and and this craving of comfort food also does that come from our hunter gathering cave dwelling ancestors at some point down the line yeah absolutely so if we look back evolutionarily when we were uh, hunters and gatherers, we went out and we foraged for nuts and seeds, berries, fruit, vegetables. We also hunt, um, hunted lean, wild animals. Um, and back in those days, we our living conditions, we didn't have shelter and clothing and, and heating and all these luxuries that we have now. So when wintertime came, when it started to get colder, our bodies would naturally, biologically, seek out more food to put on more body weight to keep us warmer. So that's kind of something that is biologically uh, underpinning our our physical lives now. Mm. So we've survived for, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years because ultimately we got a little bit chubbier in winter. <laughs> Yeah, and we also moved around with the seasons as well. But when the cold came, we ate more mm, mm. to, yeah, insulate, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess the stored energy in fat would have been really important to keep in a sort of survival mode in the cold as well. We also did it with sugar. So it was very rare back in those days to find a tree of fruit or a bush with berries or something that contained a high sugar content. And so we would gorge ourselves on these um, to store energy. Mm. And that is why now we are in this um, environment of high sugar content um, products that we can eat all this sugar and eat it and eat it and eat it and not get full yeah. for that reason. Mm. Because back in the day we need to, needed to do that evolutionarily. Mm. And, and so, Megan, I guess what you're essentially saying to a lot of people is... Um, you know, make some healthier swaps to your classic comfort foods and, and remove the food guilt and listen to what your body's telling you, which, which yeah, is quite so hard to do with, you know, like as, as you said, there's a lot of things that you go and buy that you think are healthy, but once you read the fine print, yeah. you're like, oh. Mm. So I, did, uh, I published a study last year on intuitive eating, and what that means is eating when you're hungry, Stopping when you're full, so really listening to your body's cues about when you're hungry and when you're not. And we found that of all the people that we studied who either were intuitive eating or were restricting food to lose weight, the intuitive eating people had higher body image satisfaction, uh, greater psychological well-being, lower depression, and lowered uh, eating disorders. So that was really, really interesting. 
um, to find out. Mm. And more interestingly, with that type of study too, um, I'm guessing you would have, I don't know, like I know people always say eat slow because then you can listen to your body and know when you're full. Whereas a lot of people, because they think they're so time poor, People just eat really, really quick, which then leads to overeating and not knowing how to yeah. listen to your body. Yeah, so when we eat slower uh, and listen to our bodies telling us when it's full, it takes a little while for our stomach to register the food that we, ha- we are putting into it. So if you eat really, really fast, you do tend to eat larger meals and overeat and be, be full, and, and that's the thing. Another thing... Um, is all these technological advances that we have now, we're also connected to our iPhones and our televisions and our iPads and our computers. And we're eating whilst doing other things and being distracted. And that causes us also to overeat Mm. and to really lose this connection between what our food is and, and the taste. So if we're sitting in front of the TV eating dinner, and being distracted by what's on the television, we go do the dishes, we come back, sit on the couch, and our bodies haven't registered that we've eaten that food because we didn't think, we didn't acknowledge the taste, the feeling of the food. So instantly we sit on the couch and we're like, I really feel like it's snack. Mm. I want some chocolate or some chips. And that's because we didn't concentrate enough on what we ate at dinner time, and our body's like, I haven't eaten yet. Mm. <laughs> and I wonder what role those food delivery services have too, because I think the pleasure of making your own bowl of chicken noodle soup and bowl of pasta and then eating it maybe contributes to how you're feeling at the end of it too instead of just sort of waiting for the doorbell to ring and then you're on your iPad playing Fortnite or whatever and all of a sudden <laughs> yeah, you've had 17 yeah. cheeseburgers in three da- three hours. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm kind of lucky because I live in a country town. As you can probably hear the animals in the background. Yeah. I live in a country town and... Uh, we don't have those types of um, services that bring the food to your door. We have to either cook it ourselves or we have to go out and get it from mm. wherever it is. Yep. <clears throat> I'm I'm a bit of a sucker for the old delivery service, I've got to admit. <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna give the intuitive eating a go, I think. No more no more distractions at the dinner table and listening, yeah, listening to my body. So I'm going to do it. Um, and yeah. I've just got one more question really to finish up. And I think we've already answered it really. But um, are these winter cravings something that we should embrace? I believe so. Um, with my studies in intuitive eating, I've found that if we're eating healthy and making healthy swaps into those foods that we already love, that is a really good way to start uh, being a little healthier. But if you do, if you are sitting on the couch and you really, really feel like a chocolatey pudding to comfort you, eat that chocolatey pudding. It's it's so important not to deprive ourselves. This diet culture that is around, mm. um, it, it's quite dangerous to see some of the results from that. Mm. Yeah, and I think I, uh, um, it, the future of nutri- nutrition now is going to be a personal thing, isn't it? That's very individual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Megan, and talking to us about this. Um, yeah, really interesting topic, and especially now that we're in the middle of winter, and we can all be a little bit more gentler on ourselves and 
go for that chocolate pudding if we fancy it. <laughs> and it is a great article there that uh, we'll put on our yeah, link. We'll link the article so you can all read at home yourself. Um, for Megan Lee, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. Have a good day. Thanks, Megan. Bye. And that was Megan Lee, PhD candidate and academic tutor at the Southern Cross University, talking to us about winter cravings. And if you missed any of the um, guests today on the show, we will have a podcast up later today that you can take a listen to on the 3CR Monday Breakfast page. And I think we're going to go for some more music. Yeah, we might go. There's a band called The Honey Garden with an EP called Lake Minnetonka. So we're going to listen to Finer. Well, that was the Honey Garden with Finer. And they put those are turbo real, thrusters on. Yeah, put those turbo thrusters on into Monday. Um, and they look like they are real Melbourne. So I reckon <laughs> we will be able to see these guys live. Yeah, yeah. They've got uh, the San Remo Ballroom on the front cover of their EP. Yeah. So most of these, um, I mean, even the Chelsea Drugstore, great. And uh, Teresa Duffy Richards has been some fantastic music. Mm. Um, fantastic music from some bands that we hadn't heard of before. Yes, so it's gonna, always good. Yeah, really good. And next week we will keep continuing our theme mm. of great Australian music with APRA Week coming up. Um, oh, I've left my notes. But what I was going to say was... I would like to, there it is, <laughs> thank um, the guys last week for taking our Beyond the Bars on the Road during Nailock Week. I listened on Wednesday when they were at Fulham Correctional Centre um, between 11 and 1 and can't wait for the uh, CD to come out. And yeah, as I, I mentioned, there is an opportunity to get in early and put in your order by contacting 3CR because they do go out really, really quick. And it was a yeah. such an amazing week with awesome audio that you can listen to. And there was, um, I was following up on that. There was a reason I mentioned that. So Queensland, um, the government has opened the door to financial reparations for the state's indigenous peoples after promising to negotiate a treaty with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Um, so the Deputy Premier Jackie Trad said a new panel led by Aboriginal leader and academic Jackie Huggins and former Federal Attorney General Michael Lavage will consult widely on the shape of a treaty, a possible Indigenous voice to state parliament and potential financial compensation. Um, that's positive. You know, um, to have that truth-telling and that recognition um, and the requirement of a greater voice in decisions that affect Indigenous lives. So for Queensland to be moving forward, and I guess the rest of the country, I know they've been talking about, um, we've got the Victorian Treaty Advancement, which is here, but the whole uh, constitutional change in the next few years is a bit of a step forward. Yeah, massive. Yeah. Um, On the show today, we had... We had Sanjita Pillay to begin with, 
and she was talking to us about the the new bill that came into or was proposed to Parliament by Peter Dutton um, with the TEOs, the Temporary Exclusion Order. So we shall see how that goes. And it's interesting, I think we mentioned that... Um you know, we do have a wide range of uh, laws, extensive national security regime at the moment. Um, and, and I guess what makes it so difficult to prosecute returning foreign fighters at the moment? Um, and why do national security laws need to continue to adapt? Mm. And I guess there's changing circumstances all the time. But mm. as Sanjita said, it is really hard to sort of say, well, this is what you've been charged with and this is why we're going to mm. not let you come back in. But it's it's amazing just so broad. That they don't even have to have done anything. I know. There just <laughs> has to be some suspicion from somebody yeah. if, I mean, it just, that's... And then Peter Dutton could say, well, you're not welcome. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. There's so many questions regarding this this um, bill that I, yeah, I almost want to invite Sanjita back on next week so I can finish off my question. Yeah, and you know what? I think it's probably a good idea. She mm-hmm. might be a bit surprised, but I know you had a whole <laughs> list of questions, but it would be great. You know, so the things like, well, how, depending on what an investigation uncovers, the evidence can include anything. So... If it's happening overseas, how do you get that foreign evidence? Yeah. You yeah. know, and how valuable is it, the data that's been collected overseas, yeah. not internally? Um, and and what is order, the area of offence? Mm, what have you done? And can actually, um, can be against people for as young as 14 years old. So are yeah. there any safeguards protecting these people? And do, will Australia need to get any permission from, I don't know, international law? Will it combine with that? Yeah. There was just so many questions to ask. And then on, on the other hand, there's the deport. So this is the other bill, but the the other bill is a little bit separate. I mentioned yeah. that um, there is a there's a bill to deport sex perverts, violent thugs, and domestic violence criminals. Um, so new laws to make it easier to deport those people. Um, there is under existing laws, the Department of Home Affairs must cancel visas when a foreigner is put behind bars for at least a year. But the government and police have been concerned about courts imposing lesser penalties to stop foreign offenders being kicked out of the country. So we've mm. got one bill which is stopping Australians coming home, and we've got another bill which is saying let's kick out all of these mm. criminals. Mm. Yeah. Um, so Home Affairs. Is that one, was that one put forward by Peter Tusson as well? Jim? Well, it's the Department of Home Affairs. I'm not sure who has mm. done it, but uh, yeah, the head is Peter Dutton. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then at 7:45, and then yeah, who did we have next? Michelle. We had Dr. Michelle Blanchard, who is the Deputy CEO of Sane. Um, you know, Sane was established by Anne Deverson, actually, uh, and Dr. Margaret Lagarde. And what they do is they, you know, um, help supporting people affected by complex mental health issues um, and low prevalence mental disorders. And what they were talking about was uh, the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system and, I guess, making sure that they can focus on providing accessible and appropriate care and support to all Victorians living with complex mental health issues, not just mental health issues, when they need it. Um, There are a couple of phone numbers that I had here. Um, You know, so if you are having um, mental health issues or living with mental health issues, you can call Lifeline on 131114, uh, Men's Line on 1300 789 Kids Helpline on 1800 551 800 and the Suicide Callback Line 1800 659 
0800-567-467. That's where anyone in crisis can call those numbers. Mm. And then we spoke at 8 o'clock with Megan Lee, um, and it kind of went on from your interview, Dean, with Michelle, because we were speaking about the link between food and um, the the happiness triggers that we get from our gut and actually how there is there is a link between the gut and mental health. Mm, and mm. we began with that and we were also talking about the cravings that we get um, in winter, why we shouldn't ignore them and we should embrace them and that biologically we have evolved to crave food in winter and we have evolved to crave more sugar, more fat, to plump us up so that we can survive the winter season. So I'm going to put on my chubby pants and I'm going <laughs> to enjoy it. And um, one one thing I took out of that was um, uh, Megan mentioned that when you do sort of have good eating habits, a study she did found that those, those people um, actually had better body image um, perceptions of themselves because they were a little bit more yeah. healthier and they were, yeah, they, I guess... You know, when you eat, take the time to stop and eat, mm. not be doing other things mm. which distract you from actually enjoying the food mm. that you're eating as well. Mm. And just listen to, she was sort of saying, listen to your body, listen to what you think your body needs and eat intuitively. And that's um, that's the main point of her focus at the moment on her what she's working on. Mm. And, it, yeah, really, really interesting interviews today. Um, we've always yeah. got women on the line, which um, always follows. Yeah, we've got women on the line now. Breakfast on <laughs> Monday. Beautiful Monday breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you all, and we will obviously be back next um, week. We've got women on the line coming up soon. Well, anytime. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever. There are chemical corporations around the world. They're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11 a.m. Sunday and 6.30 a.m. Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855 a.m. or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided... The nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.